Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. For the past four seasons of Crime Beat, I've worked hard to pull back the curtain and shine a light on some of the cases I've covered over more than 25 years of crime reporting. I've shared some extremely difficult and emotional cases and introduced you to officers and prosecutors who help bring justice to those impacted by these crimes. Behind each of these cases are people who deserve to have their stories told. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know it's a priority to give a voice to the voiceless. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News, and today on Crime Beat, I'm going to do something different. I'll be answering some of your questions as a special way to end the season. This is Inside Crime Beat, your questions answered. For this episode, I posted on my Facebook page, Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, asking you to send in questions. This page is a safe space for an incredible community who trusts me to share their stories. I hear from listeners of the podcast, viewers of the TV documentary series, first responders, and of course, families of those impacted by crime. The response has been overwhelming. I appreciate the kind messages of support and the amazing questions you sent in. I'll try to get to as many of them as I can, starting off with questions from Cody and Michelle. How does one become a crime reporter? What was your path? I recommend taking a journalism program. I personally went to SAIT, a post-secondary institution in Calgary. I took broadcast news. And then I got a job as a general assignment television reporter. And I really recommend going that route. I also recommend gaining experience in a smaller city. I went to several smaller centers, including Red Deer, where I worked at RDTV. It's a station that no longer exists, but I was able to gain some experience in so many different areas from anchoring to assignment editing and reporting. From there, I worked to prove myself on hard news assignments, and I had a passion for covering anything court or crime related. So I pushed myself out of my comfort zone. I knocked on doors of criminals. I asked tough questions of police. And not long after that, my boss offered me the crime beat. And that was the beginning of what would turn into more than 25 years of covering crime. And of course, that's the foundation of this podcast. That leads me into a question from Bev. What was the event that made you decide crime reporting was what you wanted to do? There was no one specific event. I do think it's important for anyone covering crime to really know the law and understand the courts and to be willing to have a career that does not fit into, you know, a standard nine to five because stories can break at any hour. As a journalist, There's also this internal drive to get out the story. It's like an adrenaline rush that comes from being on a tight deadline and knowing that you're onto something. And you just have that internal force to push the story forward. 
And there's a lot of satisfaction when you dig up information that can shed light on these stories. I work hard to build relationships with investigators. I also connect with victims and their loved ones. And in most cases, they're going through the most difficult and traumatic experiences of their lives. So I want to make sure that they have a voice if they want it during that process. The next question is from Danny. How do reporters stay safe and secure when covering stories? Do you have security? So the safety of journalists is becoming more and more concerning. And of course, the risk is always dependent on the assignment. I work for Global News, and so our managers are always assessing each assignment to determine potential risks. And often they're working with police and corporate security to determine if there are possible threats. Similarly, Kelsey asked, have you ever felt your safety is compromised working as a crime reporter? For sure, there are times that I have felt at risk. I am a journalist that likes to push for answers. And sometimes that means being willing to knock on the door of an offender. And not only have I had doors slammed in my face, I've even had a few people take a swing at me over the years. So I've been in some uh, compromised situations. And I've also ended up in some places where I didn't feel safe. However, there is always planning that happens beforehand, and that includes check-ins with my boss, and I always go with a photographer. So we discuss how we're going to approach a situation or a suspect, so I'm never alone in these situations. The next question is from Cullen. What story was the most difficult for you to work on? This one is a hard one to answer because behind every one of these stories are real people and all of them are impacted and I'm touched by each person and each case. Most of the stories I cover have difficult or disturbing details. So it's always hard to see some of those awful things that people are capable of doing to someone else. One example would be the story I shared, Hunted by Evil, That evidence was horrific to see, and that was a particularly difficult case to cover. The next question comes from Lindsay. Have you ever had to do a report on someone you knew personally? There have been several stories over the years where someone involved was an acquaintance of mine, like someone I knew growing up or maybe a friend of a friend. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you'll know that I'm transparent when this happens. One example is the story of the patients of the now disgraced neurologist, Keith Hoyt. I mentioned that the woman who started the entire investigation contacted me first. I've known her most of my life and I shared her story on the podcast. And in situations like this, I'm always touching base with my managers at Global News So they're aware of any connections, and we follow very strict journalistic principles and practices. It's so important to be transparent and make sure that a connection doesn't compromise the editorial balance of a story. There are a few questions about the podcast specifically. The first is from Cole, who asked, what's the process? Like when a case comes to you, 
Where do you start? How does the whole thing unfold for you before making it into an episode? So this really depends on the case. Most of the stories I share on the podcast are cases that I've been working on for years. I cover the crimes when they happen. I follow them through the court process. And most times I stay in touch with the families involved through the appeals process, through parole hearings. And in many ways, a case is never truly over. A lot of times I'll be working on a handful of stories at a time. So when it comes time to put together an episode for the podcast, I usually sit down and review what I've already done in covering a case and map out where to go from there to advance the story. That involves doing fresh interviews with police officers, prosecutors, and victims or family members of the victims. When I feel like I have all of the right elements collected to go forward with sharing the story, that's when this really becomes a team effort. I introduced our Crime Beat team in the final episode of season three, if you'd like to hear from everyone involved with the show. But back to the process. First, I have a discussion with my producer, Dila Velasquez. I give her an overview of the story, and then together we come up with ideas on how to structure the episode. We always end the conversation with her saying, go forth, young scribe. And that's when I dig into all of my old notes and court files and stories, and I begin writing. And that takes a lot of time. I pay extreme attention to details. And so I will contact people involved in each case to triple fact check and make sure that I'm doing the story justice. After my initial draft is done, my producer and I go through my script to address any suggestions that she might have. And then we send it off to Chris Bassett, our VP of Content and Distribution and Editorial Standards for Global News. He looks over the script and makes suggestions and changes. And a lot of times I will also send legally sensitive episodes to our lawyer. After we have that editorial and legal input, my producer and I come back together and we voice the episode. We do that together. She's with me right now in my closet while I'm voicing this episode. And it's really helpful to have her listening so that she understands how everything is sounding and if everything is flowing like it should. And then we send all of the elements off to Rob Johnston, our amazing audio editing and sound design master who puts together a rough edit. Then Dila and I will listen to that. And a lot of times we'll make changes, edits, and then it all goes back to Rob again for a final edit. And that's when he adds his magical touches to the episodes. So that can include layering sound and music. And he really addresses the pacing of the show so that we're sharing each story in an emotional and compelling way. There are so many other steps that happen along the way, but that is basically our process before we release each episode for you to listen. The next question is a tough one from L.O. Beretta. If you could improve one thing about your podcast, what would it be? I replied directly suggesting that listener feedback is always welcome. And I always appreciate messages or suggestions, ideas. And of course, a lot of people fill out reviews for Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts. So 
I definitely get some positive and negative feedback there, which we will always look at and we are constantly trying to share these important stories in the most compelling way possible, always focusing on giving the victims a voice. Of course, we're always working on new ways to improve. This season, we broke a story on the podcast. Our listeners were the first to learn the outcome of an investigation following a major sexual assault case. That's not something we've done before, and that's just on the content side. Behind the scenes, our senior audio producer is always working to find new music and sound to help support the emotional side of these stories. And I'm constantly working on my storytelling. Dila and I brainstorm ways to change up the structure of these episodes, Our mandate is always to shine a light in dark places, and that means giving a voice to the underrepresented communities and to share perspectives from people that aren't always heard. And you'll notice we're sharing more behind-the-scenes episodes, like our inside look at forensic interviewing and crime analysis. So we are constantly working to evolve and push this show forward. The next question came from Colleen, who asked, what is one thing about podcasting that totally surprised you? So it's interesting because I'm sure if you're a longtime listener, you will notice there is a progression with each season, really with each episode. And the biggest thing for me was voicing. If you watch TV news, I'm sure you're familiar with a typical broadcast sound that most reporters have. And it's something that we develop over many, many years. So in podcasting, I realized, and I would have to give credit to my producer, Dila, she told me that I needed to lose that voice. So I really just try to be myself. It's a very intimate format to share a story on. So Dila has really worked with me over the past few years to help me find my real voice. And so I just try to share these stories in a more natural and organic way. And trust me, I've seen the reviews. I've read the feedback. Some people feel I speak too fast. Some think I speak too slow. Some find my voice annoying. Listen, this is not easy. I've never said it was easy and I am doing my very best and I'm always working to improve and I very much appreciate your support and patience as I work to make these the best stories possible. I received a lot of questions about police and the justice system. As a journalist covering the justice system, it's important for me to remain neutral. I, of course, ask tough questions and hold different agencies to account for the stories I cover, but I'm not able to give my opinion on what is working or not working within these institutions. However, there are a few questions that I will try to tackle. The first one is from Shelley, and it is a complicated one that I'll try to answer in a few parts. She said, do the police release much information to the family? i.e. persons of interest, potential suspects, cause of death, etc. Do they caution the family on what they can say publicly? What happens on the family side concerning court? Who advises of appearance dates, requests for victim impact statements, etc.? So a lot of this depends on where you're living and the police agency involved. 
I can speak from my experience working in Calgary and dealing with both CPS and the RCMP. In a typical homicide case, there'll be an officer assigned as a family liaison, and that person will keep the victim's family updated on the investigation. There are some cases where police will ask families not to speak to the media because they don't want to jeopardize certain aspects of the investigation. Of course, that's case-dependent, and some families still choose to speak to a journalist they feel they can trust to respect the process. It is always the family's choice to do this, and there is no law preventing a family from speaking to the media, even if they've been asked not to by police. It is a journalist's job to verify what they're being told is true and make careful decisions about what to report so they're not jeopardizing an investigation. No journalist would want to see a criminal go free just for some scoop or breaking a story. Depending on the case, I have seen people within several different agencies working to keep victims' families updated about the court process and appearances, and that includes victim services, police, and prosecutors. I hope that helps because there were a lot of different questions within that one question. Now, a few of you had questions about the victims in the stories I share. This one is from Jackie. Do you keep in contact with the families, and is there a story that stayed with you? I do keep in contact with a lot of the families that I've met over the years. Many of them are really active on my Facebook page and have connected to others in similar situations through that page. And there are so many stories that have stuck with me over decades of reporting. One by one, I'm sharing them on Crime Beat. Some of those include Mika Jordan's story that will always weigh on me. There's the story of the young girl who was kidnapped and sexually assaulted, who I met 25 years ago and then reconnected with to help her find out what happened to her attacker. I shared her story this season in episode six called Stolen Innocence. And then there's Kelly Cook, a case I followed as a child and then ended up covering extensively, and it remains unsolved. So there are so many cases, and they all stick with me. The next question is from Jennifer, who wrote, Your podcasts are always full of compassion. You seem to develop relationships with the family of the victims. Do you maintain long-term relationships with the people you've met? Thank you, Jennifer. I do try to be compassionate in sharing these stories, and I do genuinely care about these people that I'm interviewing. As for your question, I touched on this a little bit in the last answer, but definitely I get to know a lot of these families really well. We stay in touch. And I will also reach out to a lot of these families as I uncover different updates in their cases, or sometimes they reach out to me to let me know an update. Or sometimes they just reach out to say hello. One of those people who I like to catch up with regularly is a young man that I only met last year. His name is Adam Penny Legion, and I shared his story in an episode called Shattered by a Call. His parents were murdered by his brother. Adam asked if he could join me today to help answer a few questions. This one's from Megan, who asked, how do I track down family members to interview them? 
In a lot of cases, I reach out to them on social media, which is how I first reached out to Adam back in 2018. Well, on I think it was on Facebook. And when you're not friends with somebody on Facebook, at least it gives you a request or it says somebody wants to send you a message request or something like that. So you have a choice to view it or to actually let them know that you saw it. And if you don't respond to them or you don't fully open it, then they'll never know that you saw it. So you can completely ignore them without them knowing. So you just Uh, like completely ignored me. Yeah. I, at this point we all kind of wanted nothing to do with any media. So it was just, I saw that you messaged me. Actually, I, I have the message. It was August 1st. 2018 at 11:25 a.m. Adam's response was news to me. I didn't realize that he received my message. I thought it went into a spam folder and that maybe he didn't see it. Regardless, I respect his choice not to get back to me. He was not ready to talk. And I think it really depends on the case and the person. Some people are very private and they don't want to share their stories. Others find it somewhat therapeutic to talk about what happened. And even within some families, some people are more open to doing interviews than others. And that leads me into a question from Jessica. Have you ever had a victim's family be upset that you reached out to them? Or do they all appreciate your help to bring to light their loved one's story? I think it's important to reach out and give people an option to do an interview. And then I let them decide what's best for them. Having said that, I'm not seeking anyone's permission or approval to cover a story. There is a public interest in having me cover these cases. It is my job as a journalist. However, it's also a priority to respect each family's wishes if they wish to be a part of the story or not. Yeah, I mean, your messages were different from uh, reporters trying to call us and stuff because a lot of them were just, were like basically um, cat calling us from like outside. Um, they were just, oh, hey, hey, hey. Whereas your message was more like, hey, I'm, I'm sending my sympathy, but this is what I do if you want to get in contact with me. And then it was like an easy take care, bye. Like not pushing for anything. It took Adam three years after the death of his parents and friend for him to be ready to open up. At that time, one of the other victims' family members reached out to me and asked me if I would consider sharing their story. And because there were three victims in this case, they reached out to Adam to get his input as well. And that's when we connected and he decided to share his story on Crime Beat. Looking into it and after actually speaking with you and 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 talking with other people um, or the other family that dealt with you as well, it it kind of came into light that like how respectful you are with it and how happy both families are with how like the outcome of the show happened and and just the interview in general and like the relationship that I have built not only with you but with your husband as well and being more open with people in media and things like that. It's, I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's a negative connotation towards the media in my life anymore. Since then, I'm not the only journalist who Adam has spoken with. And he asked if he could share his feelings on his different experiences. 
when I originally did the interview with you or when I entered the office, if you will, or the office building, um, it was, it was very like, not very, it was informal. It was high, like it was just super easy, you know, simple conversation. And, and you kind of gave me a, a, a briefing of we're not, I don't have a set question. I don't have, you're not drilling me with things that you need to know. It really depends on who it is. I, I dealt with a couple other media groups, um, one of them being in the States, and it was a completely different experience. I I respected the time that I that I spoke with you. I enjoyed going to the the office and sitting there and I even I even went when my when my little brother did his interview with you. It's it was more of a a friendly atmosphere and something that I was looking forward to doing like allowing me to bring up what I wanted to bring up and 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 speaking on like any of the emotional stories that happened or any of uh, even like the good experiences that happened and, and you know just life in general but my other experience was very forceful of them trying to set emotion on me so that they could catch them I want to thank Adam Penny Legion for being a part of this episode and giving some insight into how these things play out for these interviews from his perspective. I received several questions about the criminals in the cases I've covered, so I'm going to tackle a few of those now. The first is from Stephanie, who said, I'm wondering if you've ever done episodes on the murderers' families before. So this is very rare. Most times, families of the offenders choose not to speak. However, I have interviewed several family members of offenders over the years. The one that really stands out to me is the mother of a triple murderer. I shared her story in a two-part series called Darkness in the Pass in season two of Crime Beat. She provides a really unique and important perspective. Knowing her own son committed horrific crimes has been really traumatic for her. And she's been a victim as well. So if you haven't already, I highly recommend giving that series a listen and hearing her story along with the families of the victims in that case. The next question is from Mimi and also from Jessica. Have you ever interviewed any suspects while they're incarcerated, like prison interviews? I have, and it's not an easy process. And in my experience, not a lot of inmates are willing to be interviewed. And the ones who say they're willing often change their mind. It's definitely not as simple as TV shows make it seem, and it's particularly difficult to do in the Canadian justice system. Just this year, I had an interview lined up with someone convicted of first-degree murder, and he backed out at the last minute. There is an interview I did with someone who has been in and out of jail, someone who has also been a victim himself, and I do hope to share his story in a future episode. The next question is from Lindsay. I'm curious if victims or perpetrators' families have taken issue with the way a case was portrayed, whether those complaints were fair or not, and how do you handle that? Of course, there are always going to be people who aren't happy with media coverage of a story. I always strive to present a case in a fair and balanced way, 
And if someone has an issue with a story, I'm always happy to hear those concerns. We work hard to provide facts and accurate news coverage. As a news media outlet, Global News is regulated by the CRTC to ensure we provide fair and balanced reporting in the public interest. So if anyone has concerns, there are mechanisms to complain and we are held accountable. So we are very careful with our reporting. Now for one of the most overwhelming themes that always comes up when I put out a post asking for questions, and that is the emotional impact of these cases, along with mental health and work-life balance of crime reporting. I receive questions from Tasha, Natalie, and Allison, along with many, many others. How has the podcast changed who you are, the way you live, and how you see the world? Has reporting these horrific crimes changed your view on humanity? The short answer is yes. For sure, I see things through a more jaded lens. I've covered cases where people have done the most unthinkable things to other people. And so I think it would be impossible not to look at the world a little bit differently. Journalists are trained to be suspicious and question things in order to get the facts, but we're also human beings. And of course, I can't help but being affected by some of the things that I cover. I'm also very good at compartmentalizing, so, um, and that's to get the job done. And that being said, I still try to see the best in people, but for sure, I know there are monsters out there, and that is just the reality of the world that we live in. The next question is from Benny. How has being a crime reporter affected your personal life? Work can be stressful. It takes up a lot of my time. I don't work normal hours, so it's very difficult to have a work-life balance. That's something that I'm always working on, but I also think it's important to note that I love my job. So I'm willing to pour a lot of time and energy into making sure I'm doing the best I possibly can. That leads me into a few questions from Charmaine, Crystal, and Stephanie. I'd love to know how you disconnect from work. I would imagine you're privy to a lot of sensitive material. I hope you can do this podcast for many years to come, but I would think it takes a toll. So for sure, there is some difficult subject matter, but I always remind myself that what I see and hear and process is always less than what the victims and first responders experience. So that really puts things into perspective. And it's also important to remember that while I'm a journalist and it is my job to remain fair and balanced, as I said earlier, I am also human. So of course I am impacted by these stories. I have two adorable cats who get a lot of attention. I share photos of them on social media. You probably see those. Um, I also make time to exercise. That is a huge way for me to de-stress. I prioritize making time to get outside and go for a walk. And very soon, I plan to get back to taking some time off to recharge. Andre and Nancy both asked, How much sleep do you get when you're heavy into researching for a podcast? I'm guessing there are nights when you lay your head on the pillow and you just can't shut your brain off. I imagine you have nightmares. Heck, I'm amazed that after so many, you're still able to have a smile on sometimes. (laughs) So, 
That's true. I do find it hard to shut off my brain and sleep at night, whether it's because I'm working on a particular episode or just because of some of the photos and details of a case that I'm pouring over. I do try to specifically focus on something a bit lighter right before I go to bed, like watching a show that's not heavy and not stressful, a show like Seinfeld. Even though I've seen every episode multiple times, it's just something that can take my mind off of my work. I want to thank everyone who sent in a question, and I promise I will do this again in the future. So if I didn't get to yours, I will try next time. This marks the end of season four of Crime Beat. I appreciate all of your support. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And thank you to all of the victims and families who've trusted me to share your stories. Over the next few months, I'll be investigating some really interesting cases, and I'll be back with new episodes and season five in the fall. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the VP of Content in Distribution and Editorial Standards for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And you can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and you can join me on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me for season five in the fall. <laughs>